Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. My dear Nelly, what can I tell you of the tender emotion that I have felt again after so many years? It seemed to me that it was yesterday that I said au revoir to you and that I have found myself near to you the same in spite of the age. I was so happy to find you in spite of your sufferings, moral and physical, the same Nelly who had never changed and who remains in my life, sometimes so sad, the only constant and faithful friend whom even in the delirium of death that I so closely escaped, my soul and heart reached across space. For you know me and understand me, in spite of all the world has done to separate the one from the other. I'm satisfied because the confidence you give me in my recompense. Thank you again for the last few moments in which you really made me happy in invoking the best years of my youth that I have relived through you and with you. I count the minutes that separate me from the moment when I see you tomorrow evening. I hope for no longer than this evening. I have so many things to say to you that I cannot write, but that tomorrow evening will come of themselves from my lips when I am near to you. I do hope you will give me the time to tell you all that I have in my heart. Meanwhile, my dear Nelly, I kiss most affectionately your pretty hands and I'm always your old tip on. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Robert Wainwright is a journalist whose career has ranged from politics to crime. He's the author of several books, including Rose, the unauthorised biography of Rose Hancock Porteous, The Lost Boy, The Killing of Caroline Byrne, and Sheila, the Australian beauty who bewitched British society. But today I'm chatting with Robert about his latest book, Nellie, The Life and Loves of Dame Nellie Melba. Robert, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Greg. So there's quite a few biographies of Dame Nellie Melba, but part of the title of your book, Life and Loves, suggests something much more personal about the life of Nellie. What did you want to explore in writing Nellie? I've written several biographies in recent times um, about women, and particularly from that period of history, Australian women who've become famous overseas. And I think the uh, enduring theme is the difficulty they had in establishing themselves uh, against society's lack of expectation, I suppose. And I was uh, quite um, intrigued by by Nellie because we, or I grew up anyway, knowing perhaps the older Nellie, the the successful Nellie, um, who had a persona of, dare I say, the diva about her and she there's you know, I could picture it in my mind a rather squarish older woman uh, dressed in furs with this voice I didn't really understand but there seems so much more to her and, uh, and we have to understand that, that successful people come from somewhere uh, much younger um, and who was the younger Nellie um, and what was her journey to this this place and uh, there's been a number of biographies over the years. It seems to be a, a biography of nearly every decade or so. Um, and I felt that there was room to explore a more personal journey of the younger woman, and in particular, a love affair that she had uh, as at the moment that she's becoming successful, um, 
which threatened that very career before it had really reached its its peak. And um, and I think there were, you know, apart from anything else, it was with a um, a would be king of France, and it, it sort of smacked of something really interesting. So I thought I'd explore that side of her life. Your book describes her in various ways: brave, ambitious, determined, hardworking, confident, competitive, even egotistic. But your book also reveals a slightly more vulnerable side to her. How do you reconcile these different aspects of her personality from what her public persona and her private life? Well, again, I think we come back to social expectation. I mean, she was the product of a very confident Presbyterian successful businessman, David, who she doted upon, even though he, uh, he was against his daughter becoming a professional singer. And I think she inherited this aspect of, of her father, so she was somebody who was very determined, very single-minded, um, and had quiet confidence in herself. But she struggled against social expectation, and uh, I think this hardened her to um, the way she was viewed. Behind there, it's it's a young woman who's trying to succeed against the odds. Even though she came from a well-to-do family, she came from a colonial country, and she wanted to be successful on a world stage. She didn't speak French very well or Italian, but she decided to, um, to strike out into the world and, and, and use her talents to see how far she could get. She was vulnerable in the sense that she didn't take criticism well. Um, she um, fought against that, but it made her try harder. So, uh, And behind all this, uh, this confidence, there was this vulnerability that was ever-present in her response to, uh, to this criticism, I suppose. I never got the sense from reading your book that Melba wished to be recognised as anything other than being Australian. Do you think that was to her disadvantage? Uh, no, I, I think quite the contrary. Uh, and I think it's a wonderful part of, of her persona. Not only her name that she struck. I mean, her name is Helen Porter Mitchell, obviously. Um, and her, her great teacher, uh, Matilda Marchese, found the, the surname Armstrong, her married name, a little bit too boring for the European stage. So they came up with Melba, which was, was obviously an, an aspect of, of Melbourne. And I, th I think it was a strength uh, that she knew who she was and where she came from. And she always wanted to, uh, to maintain that spirit. Um, there was no judgment of her um, overseas um, as being Australian, therefore not good enough. In fact, if anything, she was seen as exotic because she was she was the first, um, really, and I think she was really Australia's first international superstar as well, um, even though it was barely 100 years ago. One of the things I really like about this book is, is as we've just said, that the humanity that it brings to a life we see as almost mythical, but this is a more personal examination of her life and particularly her relationships. Um, and the way you write it, it's almost like a, an unfolding drama they exist like characters on a stage, in a sense, which kind of makes sense for an operatic star. At the top of this podcast, you read from a letter that is included in your book, and it's a rather heartfelt letter from one of Melba's greatest admirers, and it's signed Tipon. Who was Tipon? Tipon was Philippe Duc d'Orléans, who was an heir to the French throne. His, his great-great-grandfather actually was the last king of France, and even though he identified very powerfully with his Parisian roots. He, he was born in London in Twickenham and spent very little of his life. He wasn't allowed back in. He was in exile like the rest of his family. Uh, he was a very confident young man who, who, who knew his destiny or wanted his destiny was to return 
and he fought very hard and very often to be able to get back into the country. He was eight years younger than, than Nelly, but um, in 1890, uh, after having served some time in, in a French prison because he dared return to the country and sign up to be a soldier, he went back to London and he was captivated by the opera star and, and wanted to meet her and they fell in love in the summer of 1890. At the time, Nellie's marriage was on the rocks. Her husband, Charlie Armstrong, who was, funnily enough, the son of a, an Irish aristocrat, was back in Australia and they were estranged and, and um, clearly the marriage wasn't going to work. And, and Nellie and, and Philippe fell in love and had a, a three-year affair, which was seen as being couldn't have possibly been serious for various reasons, but in fact, I believe it was a very serious love affair that could easily have resulted in a very successful marriage, if you will. Sadly, it didn't. Uh, and the tenor of that letter, which was written in 1919, so three decades after the affair ended, shows me the, the depth of their love which uh, from, these brief, from these three years and the importance to both Nelly and to Philippe of this, of this relationship. It's hard to know what to make of Tipon. He seems to be quite impetuous. And there's a really interesting section in your book on Melba's tour of Russia, I suppose, was the beginning of a, the scandal. Scandal doesn't necessarily mean a fall from grace, even in the Victorian era. What effect did that have on a career, if any? Probably enhanced it because Paris or, or France actually likes an affair its attitude towards sex, even in those days, was very different to the Victorian attitude, of course. I think in Paris, they flocked to see the scandalous woman at the Palais de Garnier. And then by the time she got to England, to Covent Garden, which is really the triumph of her career, even the cold-hearted English decided they want to go and see this woman at the centre of the scandal rather than to shun her. Uh, England's attitude to, to affairs was they were fine in that part of society was that affairs were fine. You just didn't allow them to come out publicly. So, you know, people carried on, they had husbands and wives and they procreated. But in fact, in the aristocracy and the upper levels of society, probably most marriages didn't last and they, they carried on in, in name only and people went off and had lots of affairs. They just didn't talk about them. Nelly and, and Philippe did the opposite. They were seen at Hotel Metropole and they were seen, as you say, in Russia where um, uh, Philippe stood up in the, uh, in the box at the opera and applauded his lover uh, despite the fact that etiquette said that the Tsar was the one who led the applause. And they carried on again in Vienna. They, sort of, uh, they were seen at the local opera and they dressed in their own clothes because everybody in Vienna, sort of dressed in, uh, in more modest attire to go out to dinner, but uh, they turned up in their, in their finest jewellery and white coats and, um, and it sort of played out very dramatically even in the media in those days, so um, almost tabloid in their, in their response to this affair. And all this is, of course, in complete contrast to the fellow that she married as a 21-year-old, Charles Armstrong. He was quite a different character and... Frankly, I really came to dislike Charlie Armstrong. Tell me about Charlie. This is one of the intriguing things about a story like Nellie. Nellie's life as an adult began in Mackay in Queensland, in, in, in sugar country, not in Melbourne. Her mother had died suddenly and she was put in charge of the younger sister. She was the oldest of eight children. And the younger sister then died. And, and here's this young woman who's devastated by these two deaths. And her father took her to, to Mackay into this sugar mill called Marion, which is a beyond three rivers in the middle of nowhere. 
And she met this young man, Charlie Armstrong, who sounds Australian, but he was actually Irish or English. And uh, he had found the opposite. He had found a life as a, uh, a jackaroo and as a boxer, a tent boxer in Australia, despite his aristocratic upbringings. Whereas Nellie was the opposite. She grew up in colonial Australia, but she desired the culture of Europe. But they met and fell in love very quickly and probably physically, uh, and they're both outgoing characters. And they married in, impetuously in Brisbane on the way back to Sydney. And within months, Nellie fell pregnant. And um, they were arguing about money one day back in Melbourne and, and, uh, and Charlie uh, punched her in the face. And essentially, this is the way the marriage went. And Charlie sort of responded to the frustrations of life with violence. And uh, there are many instances uh, over the next few years of violence against Nellie, including threats with swords and razor blades and throwing things at her. And she, on the trip out to London, he punched her so often that, uh, that she lost her hearing for several days. And this was all sort of covered up in the niceties of marriage, but it was, a, it was a, an awful time for a woman who then became essentially a single mother in, in Paris trying to establish a career with a, a, a two-year-old child. If we can turn to another relationship, a more positive one, much more positive one, which is uh, the relationship with her teacher, Mathilde Marchese. It's beautifully dramatised in your book too. What kind of uh, relationship was that? Well, it's, I think it was a, a mother-type relationship, I mean, for several reasons. Uh, Matilda was a very dominant, powerful woman in her own right, uh, a German teacher who was uh, regarded as, as the best in Paris. She'd lost children herself. She'd had a, an aborted career because of um, social expectations and, you know, she was there to follow her husband rather than have her own career. She sang once in opera despite her desires. And Nellie had lost her own mother and she found this woman who was powerful and loving and, uh, and encouraging and uh, she became her mother in many ways. And so it was not only a, um, teaching her or to refine her singing but also to uh, establish her character, to encourage her to be a powerful person, a determined person, and in fact, in some respects, a, an artistically ruthless person, which some people would regard as, as, as poor, but I think it's understandable. That, uh, and I think that was part of the character that developed uh, with the help of Marchilda Marchese and, of course, the background of David Mitchell, her father. I want for a moment just to talk about the voice, this famous voice. The existing recordings of her voice don't really convey a very, very good or very true sense of her voice. She's often referred to as the Australian Nightingale. Uh, how would you describe her voice? Um, it's true that, that the recordings don't um, sort of come through that well. And in fact, she was one of the first, if not the first, to, to make recordings. Um, I think its uniqueness was her ability to sing very high with very little effort. She had great control over, over her uh, vocal cords. Uh, and she had a trill that, um, that really made, it was like a silver bell, I suppose, at the, at the top of her range, which I think was high F, which is quite unusual. And so she was suited to, to light opera, which was very Italian opera, as it's described, of, of Verdi, those type of... Uh, she was known for Romeo and Juliet and um, Violetta and, and Fausta. Um, but it did not, was not suited to heavier opera, which was Wagner operas, for example. 
Uh, and in fact, when she strayed into trying to sing some Wagner operas, was more a failure than a success. So her range was limited to about, it sounds like a lot, but it's not really, about 25 operas uh, for which she was famed. She's often referred to as Australia's first real international superstar or the greatest of Australia's daughters, I think you quote in your book. She's on our $100 bill, so she obviously has something going for her. I certainly think she fits the bill as the, uh, our first international superstar. I mean, I can't think of another example because of, of the time. Does she deserve to be on the $100 bill? Yes, absolutely. I think she established something quite unique. She took a long time to come back to Australia, and she had a very hard time when she came back, strangely. Um, but uh, she, she endured and she, she triumphed, if you like, on behalf of Australia. She identified very much as Antipodean. And, and she, she wore that proudly. I love her in America, which was the next stage of her career. She travelled widely across, you know, across America, almost like Australia, on a train and went from small town to small town and large city to large city. And they loved her not only because of her singing, but because she was, in their words, plain speaking. She could be Australian. She could... She could be a, a woman who spoke her mind and, and Americans loved her for it and, and about her being Australian. And I think that's rather powerful in her story. I couldn't finish this interview without talking about having a dessert named after her, the Peach Melba, a creation by Auguste Escoffier, one of the legendary chefs of all time, really, but particularly in the 19th and early 20th centuries. What's your best experience of a Peach Melba? I should have had one as I was writing the book, I suppose. I, I, I remember having one, I think, back in the 80s. Uh, maybe they had come back in favour then. But um, uh, important to note that in his book, in uh, one of his books where he, he put down the recipe, the very next recipe is, um, uh, is a dessert for uh, Philippe d'Orléans, which shows that the two are, are connected. They came one after the other in, in his recipe book, and they were both for desserts and a slight twist on hers. It's a really interesting book, Robert. So uh, I'd like to thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much, Greg. I've been talking to Robert Wainwright about his book, Nellie, The Life and Loves of Dame Nellie Melba. It's published by Alan and Unwin and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself? or give the gift of a Luxuryread subscription today. Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.